Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Our text this morning, we're going to start by looking at Ezra chapter 3. And this is a recording of, of the exiles returning from Babylonian captivity. They are rebuilding the temple. They've, they've built the altar, and now they've laid the foundations. And this is what happens when the foundations are laid. You hear the word of the Lord. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. The people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Father, we are listening to a sound that was made long ago, and we are hearing it from far away. Please speak to us through these ancient words, and through these ancient people, remind us of the calling that you have placed on our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Strange how few moments in Old Testament history we can pinpoint with laser beam accuracy, but there are a few that we can date with reasonable certainty. In the year 519 BC, on the day, February the 15th, in the evening of the 15th of February, 519, over the course of just one night, God unfolded his plan for the future of the world. He did it through a series of night visions, a series of dreams, which he revealed to the prophet Zechariah over the course of that night. The significance of those dreams, though, would not be apparent for many years to come. Not until Christ came would the meaning of those visions become perfectly clear. But those visions in the night gave the people of Zechariah's day a glimpse of the kingdom that was coming. And as we go back and we study these night visions, we too are given a glimpse of God's kingdom. But as it were, to borrow Paul's words, a glimpse of the kingdom through a glass darkly, a glimpse of the kingdom, but not all of its parts, a glimpse that we wonder at, a glimpse that remains incomplete and mysterious. If we know what these visions were pointing to, if we already understand the realities that these were just types and shadows of, then what's the value of going back and reflecting on Zechariah's night visions? Well, one of the values, one of the reasons why it still matters for us to know these visions is that the people that Zechariah was sent to speak to are people who have a lot in common with us, a generation of people that we can sympathize with. The people that Zechariah spoke to were exiles in Babylon who had received a wonderful deliverance. They had returned out of exile, returned to Jerusalem as had been promised, 
They were in that first wave of exiles to return. But when they returned, they were quickly overcome by disillusionment. So they had the wonder of deliverance, but also immediately this disillusionment that we've already heard alluded to in our text. The the shouts of joy accompanied by the weeping and so much of both that it's hard to tell the two apart. They were disillusioned because when they got to Jerusalem, frankly, they'd expected so much more. They'd heard about this city. They hadn't grown up there, but they had dreamed of it. It was the object of all of their longings. But when they got there, they had thought, I don't know, it would be more impressive. They had thought there'd be more to Jerusalem than what they found. They thought it would be full of promise, and they thought that what they wanted from Jerusalem, they could have easily without so much effort. And so quickly they became discontent with where they found themselves, unhappy in the promised land. And their discontent led them to abandon the building of God's house. And instead they focused on their own concerns. They gave up on building the temple and instead they built their own temples, their own lives, their own houses. They complained about the state of things in Jerusalem. And so they focused on themselves. And ironically, as they complained about their disappointments in the city of God, they were withholding the effort to build the city in a way that, that created the disappointment, a cycle of disappointment. And in the same way, we can relate to the wonder of deliverance, to the amazing gift that we have in forgiveness in Jesus Christ, quickly followed by disillusionment with the life that we have in Christ, disillusionment with the body of Christ, disappointment with the church. At the same time that we are investing our efforts elsewhere, building our own kingdoms instead of God's, we feel disappointment in what God has done. But we don't do this out of selfishness. It's not that we're tending to our own concerns because we're just selfish people who don't care about others, don't care about what God has called us to. We do it out of disillusionment, out of hurt, out of pain, because we think that the church and by extension, God has failed us somehow, has wounded us. But in fact, it's the other way around. It is our own failures that have created the situation that leads to our disillusionment, just as it did in Jerusalem of old. We dig into the book of Zechariah. There's a foundation that we have to lay. And this morning, we're going to try to do three things. First, we're going to look at the historical context that Zechariah and also Haggai speak into. What's going on in the world? And then secondly, we'll look at the immediate problem, like the reason these prophets suddenly start prophesying. They weren't always prophets. They were suddenly called, and they were called to speak to an exact situation. We'll look at that, and then finally, we'll look at the challenge that we face today. Why this this struggle is still relevant to us, if that makes sense. So we'll think about the context first, right? The first wave of God's people who returned from Babylonian exile were surprised by what they found. They were surprised by what they found. Now, we need to talk about the nature of the return a little bit, right? You know, if you know kind of the big picture, of Old Testament history, that the people 
were disobedient and that as a punishment, God rose up these foreign nations. Israel was defeated and the people were carried off into captivity. But then after 70 years, they came back. And that's kind of the way we think of it happening. We think of the Babylonian exile and the return as being a lot like the exodus from Egypt. Like everybody got together in Babylon, they looted the place, and then they marched back to Israel and set up the nation. But that's not actually what happened. It was very different from what had happened in Egypt. The people returned to Judea, but they did it in waves. They did it kind of over time. So you'd have little clusters of people returning. This began in the reign of Cyrus, so about 438, 437 B.C. is when Cyrus issues the decree that leads to this return to Jerusalem, the exile's return. So in about 537, we find this first wave returning, and immediately they restore the altar. They rebuild the altar so they can make sacrifices, and they start rebuilding the temple. To do that, they have to lay foundations. Everything's been destroyed. Jerusalem is a ruin. And so they've got to rebuild. So they do that in 537. And then in 536, they begin the work on the temple. They lay those foundations, as we read. There's some shouts of joy, and there's some weeping. And then they start building, but they run into some trouble with that building. So 536 is when that rebuilding work begins. Now, when you think of the leaders of the first wave or the leaders of the exiles, the names that come to mind, there's two names in particular, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the year 458. So the return begins in 537. Ezra arrives in 458. That's like 70 years later. So Ezra, the priest, who we think of as a leader of the return, he doesn't arrive for like 70 years. So Nehemiah, what about Nehemiah? When does he get there? He gets there after Ezra. He gets there in 445, so about 10 years or so after Ezra does. The book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah record the events of this return. They record it after the fact by almost a century looking back at things that happened. So what we remember as having happened all at once actually happened over time. And the leaders of that first wave, that first return, were not Nehemiah and Ezra. They hadn't even been born. There were two other names that should be stuck in our minds, the leaders of that return, but we don't often remember these guys, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the priest. They were the 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 Nehemiah and the Ezra of the actual first return. Zerubbabel was the governor. He was like the political leader. Zerubbabel is the one who led that first wave of people to resettle Jerusalem. And he, interestingly, was a descendant of King Jeconiah. So he's a descendant of the king of Judah that Nebuchadnezzar dethroned. So he's in that Davidic royal line. He's not a king himself. He's just a governor but he does come from that line. And Zerubbabel is one of the people who becomes a focus of prophecy. In Haggai and in Zechariah, his name will come up. He becomes a kind of figure of the Davidic king. Joshua, the high priest, is kind of his right-hand man. The two of them are working together. Joshua, you'll see in our text from Ezra, uh, Jeshua is the way that it's spelled, Yeshua. 
would have been his name. He was named, of course, after the great conqueror of the promised land, but also after the great savior of God's people, Jesus, looking ahead a little bit. Zerubbabel and Joshua are the leaders, and these are the ones that we're going to be learning about in these prophetic books. And then the two prophets of this period are Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah. And what's interesting is their dates overlap significantly. Like they are working as prophets on top of each other. Right? I mentioned those dates. We've got the temple being rebuilt in 536. That work begins by 530. It comes to a stop. And on August the 29th, 520, Haggai starts prophesying. August the 29th, 520, and he continues until December the 18th of 520. So there's this little window where Haggai is operating from like the summer of 520 till the end of 520. And then around October, November, Zechariah starts. There's some overlap in their dates. And then Zechariah takes over. And then as we saw on February 15th, 519, he has these glorious visions, but he'll actually continue to have a prophetic ministry for several years into that. So God raises up prophets to speak to these leaders of the first wave about their disillusionment. Does Ezra 3, which we read, suggest the returned exiles, they were surprised and disappointed by what they found in the so-called New Jerusalem, the city that they had been promised. It was just a ruin in need of rebuilding. What they managed to rebuild, the stuff they could put back together was disappointing. If you'd seen the old temple, you were not impressed with the work being done on the new. And it was heartbreaking to think this is where we're going to worship compared to the glory that went before. If you could remember what had been, then the present was disappointing. Or maybe you'd never seen that, but you dreamt of what the city would be like. And now you face the reality and it's just not. So you build, and even these modern or modest efforts, these, these substandard foundations that you lay, even that is really hard. Even to get this, this unimpressive structure built, there's constant opposition in the city. You can't even make sad foundations without everybody rising up and trying to stop you. So they did what most of us do when the work is hard. And the rewards are small. They stopped. They stopped doing it. They started and decided it wasn't worth it. After a few years of, of work on this temple, they just discontinued the efforts and got on with their lives. After the altar and the foundations were laid, the work of building the temple was abandoned for a decade. That's the problem. That's the specific issue these prophets are speaking to. The fact that the people aren't building. These prophets are raised up by God to speak to the people about why they're not building the temple and to get that to change. All right, so from 530 to 520, for 10 years, no work is being done on the temple. And then in 520, God starts speaking through his prophets. And if you look at our text in Haggai, you get just a flavor of, of the, the tone of this, God says in verse three of Haggai one, the people are saying it's not time to rebuild God's house. But the answer in verse four 
Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? It's time to build. That's the message of the prophets boiled down. It is time to build. And that's what happens. So if you look at our texts in Ezra 5 and Ezra 6, these are bookends. They show the beginning of the prophetic work and the end of the prophetic work. So Haggai and Zechariah, how their ministry starts, and then how it ends. And it ends with success. If you look at Ezra 5, 1 and 2, you see the beginnings. Right Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The leaders could not get the people to build, but then the prophets came along and supported them, and now the people began to build once more. And then if you go to chapter 6 of Ezra, the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius, Dardaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And if you keep reading in Ezra, you find they celebrate Passover once they've completed this work of the temple. That makes this prophetic ministry seem really easy and straightforward. They started up, problem solved. There you go. It took four years, 516, when they finished with the temple and celebrated that Passover. But when you look at Ezra's account, because Ezra, again, is telling like a like hundred years of history, it's pretty compressed. It's pretty condensed. As we look at Haggai and dig deep into Zechariah, you'll find there's so much more to it than that. Yes, it's about getting the people to build the temple, but it's also a question of how the people are motivated to build. Like, what is it that makes them start building again if it's not the city that they're living in. If it's not what they can see with their eyes, why do they build again? To inspire the exiles to build again today, God gave them a prophetic glimpse of the kingdom tomorrow. He showed them what the future held, and that's what led them to build for the present. Now, our focus is going to be on that vision, on what he showed them, And it's going to be on that for the same reason that it was for them, because we too need to know why we're building, what the future is that we're building for. So as you can tell from that quote from Haggai, the prophets are sent to rebuke the people. They are sent to rebuke them for their disillusionment, to call them to repentance. When we confront disillusionment, oftentimes we sympathize and we're gentle with those who are discontent, and we often stop short of rebuke. But here the prophets do rebuke, and Calvin says they do it rightly. He says, this rebuke was not said without reason when we consider in what sort of delusions they indulged immediately after their return. They became devoted to their private concerns while the temple remained desolate. They retained the name of God, but their impiety showed itself by clear signs. It is then no wonder that the prophet sharply stimulates them to repentance by calling them out, 
by saying, hey, that's a nice house you have. It's a shame that God's house lies in ruins, shaming them into doing the work that they were called to do. They had returned to Jerusalem, but instead of devoting themselves to God and building the city, they'd reverted back to their private concerns. They'd neglected their spiritual calling. And then they looked around with disillusionment. They said, this is the new Jerusalem. This is what it's all about. Not very impressive. State of the city disillusioned them, yet it was their own neglect that caused it. They were disillusioned with the city, but it was their neglect of their calling that made the city what it was. We should be able to sympathize with that because instead of devoting ourselves to our spiritual calling, instead of building the city of the church, the people of God, we've been consumed by our own cares, our own concerns. We built our own little kingdoms and sought our security and our comfort there. And then we look at what God is doing We look at the church, whether it's the the church as a whole or or the church individually, and we find fault with what it lacks. Look at all the things it doesn't have. But of course, it doesn't have these things because we've neglected to build them. Because we've neglected the work. If the problem is that they've stopped building, the solution obviously is to start building. You've got to build again. But that means living differently. It means living differently, focusing on different values. In order to inspire the people to build again, they had to start living for the future and not just the present. That's the challenge for us as well. We face a similar situation to them, and the solution is the same. If we're going to build, then we have to channel even our disillusionment into God's coming kingdom, even if it's a kingdom that we only glimpse through a glass darkly. We have to be willing to sacrifice and face opposition and build despite that opposition, even if what we're building is something we can only see dimly on the horizon. We have to own our disappointment, but we also have to own the cause. Now, at Grace, we talk a lot about longing for more grace, for more depth and more community. And when you talk openly about those longings, it's natural that that it will resonate with people who share that kind of longing, right? You'll gather people who can relate to that sort of discontent or that kind of uh, disillusionment. If you've longed for more grace and more depth and more community in the church and you haven't found those things, then disillusionment and disappointment are natural results, not strange. And so finding a congregation where you're talking about these things openly, where it's okay to admit, like everything's not perfect, and and we're longing for more grace and more depth and more community, can be a place of healing, a place of relief to be able to focus on those longings. We have to own that. Disappointment, not pretend it's otherwise, not pretend, oh no, everything's fine. I look around and the world is as it should be. And our lives are as they should be. And the church is as it should be. We can't tell ourselves that. We have to be honest with the fact that sometimes we shrug. We say, this is it. This is what God is doing. Hmm. We've got to own the disappointment, but we can't stop there. 
You own the disappointment, but then you also address the cause as well. And the cause is that you expected more, and you expected to get it more easily. That you thought that what God had for you would be more than this, and you thought that he would give it to you without so much effort, without so much opposition. You wanted what you were longing for to be handed to you, and instead God called you to build it. That's the source of so much of our discontent and our disillusionment, that what we expected to have handed to us on a platter, God called us to build. And so we stop and we neglect it. We've got to own that too. Because just because you're talking about your discontent doesn't mean it goes away. But talking openly about our disappointment doesn't make those disappointments disappear. We have to actually change the causes. We have to start seeing things differently. And that's the power of seeing through a glass darkly. As we touch on Haggai and as we dig into Zechariah, the challenge for all of us is going to be this, to start living not according to what we see clearly, but to start living according to what we see through a glass darkly, what we see in a mirror dimly, living for the mysteries, living for the future hope, not for the present reward and the present reality. Zechariah's night visions were cryptic and mysterious before Christ came. And honestly, as you'll see, they remain mysterious and cryptic to a degree. Still, that's the reason why in the book of Revelation, when John wrote his revelation, uh, Zechariah is second only to Ezekiel in terms of influence. As we go through Zechariah, you'll find a lot of things that make you think of, of Revelation. So it's hard to understand that New Testament prophetic work without being familiar with this Old Testament prophecy as well. But as mysterious as these visions were and remain, the point is these glimpses led to action. But we know what the result was. When these visions were revealed, the people began to build. They began to work again and they completed the temple that they'd been called to complete. How did they do that? Well, the visions accomplished that by taking the leaders of the people and the people themselves, the exiles, and focusing them on the coming kingdom, not on the present one, not on the disappointment of now, but on the promise of what was coming, which gave them a reason to build for tomorrow. When I use that phrase, uh, through a glass darkly or in a mirror dimly, of course, that's Paul's phrase from 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And that's a touchstone passage. That's one of those, those verses I find myself going back to over and over and over again. And it always seems to yield more. But the contrast when Paul says those words is a contrast between like imperfect knowledge, which is like seeing in a dim mirror or looking through a glass darkly, and face-to-face knowledge, face-to-face knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. But to see at all, even through a glass darkly, even in a mirror dimly, you have to be looking. In order to see anything at all, you have to be looking. And the problem with disillusionment, if we don't address its causes, is that disillusionment leads us to look away. The reason why people turned from their calling and and were consumed in their private concerns is that they were no longer looking to 
to the kingdom. They were no longer looking to what God was doing. Instead, they had turned away. So instead of being discontent with seeing through a glass darkly, we have to recognize that even seeing in a glass darkly is a gift. It is designed to keep us looking in the direction that we ought to look. And seeing things in part, knowing things in part, is, is actually what drives the longing to know fully. It's because Paul sees in a mirror dimly that he longs to see Christ face to face. If he turned away, if he just focused on other things, that longing would subside. Instead, he remains focused on what he knows, even though it's partial, and he longs for a fuller knowledge. And we, too, are called to that kind of longing. Although these prophecies remain mysterious to us, although the kingdom is not fully realized, we are called to keep looking and to keep searching in order to find it and to build it. And when you look at what God is doing now and you look at the city or you look at the church and you say, is this it? Is this all there is? It just doesn't seem like much. Is this the new Jerusalem? Know that the answer is, of course not. Absolutely not. It is supposed to be incomplete. It is supposed to be a work in progress. It is occasionally supposed to be even a ruin because God has called us here to build it. God has called us here to build it up. And that's what we are doing. So, no, this isn't it. This isn't the kingdom, but the kingdom is coming. And as God's people, what we must do is to keep looking and to keep building. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.